For those that are remaining in the auditorium and watching online, take your Bibles if you would, and once again head over in the book of Romans to chapter 15, Romans chapter 15, verses 22 through 33. Last week we looked at Paul's heart, and as he wraps up the uh, sort of teaching aspect of this letter, and he will move into greetings and closing in chapter 16 as we get there. He sort of expresses then where all of this is coming from, his heart for the ministry, his heart for the Gentiles, his heart to preach the gospel to those who have never heard, ultimately his heart for God. And out of his heart comes his passion, and we see that in the passage that we have before us this morning. It should be very easy to determine what someone's passion is. Our passions are the things that we speak about readily. They are at the forefront of our minds. They are the things we spend our time and energy and resources on. They are the things that we post about and retweet and repost about. It is very easy or ought to be to see what someone's passion is. It's very much at the forefront of what they think and say and do and what they promote. And that is what you have here in this passage is Paul's passions. And I hope we see by the end that the reason why these are important is that they resonate with God's passions. Far too often, especially during this time of COVID, we have seen what people's true passions are. And unfortunately, they have not always been a passion for the same things that God is passionate about. But here we have Paul's passion, and it comes out to us through the pages here of this letter. So follow along with me, if you would, and let me read in your hearing Romans chapter 15, verses 22 through 33 this morning. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you, the reason being his desire to preach the gospel where it had not been preached previously. Verse 20. But now, verse 23, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. This is the word of God. In the first place then this morning we see Paul's passion for the unreached. This, of course, we have already seen, but it is, it is reiterated for us here in verses 22 through 24. Paul has a passion 
that those who do not yet worship Jesus Christ would worship Jesus Christ. That those who are currently in their sins lost and undone before a thrice holy God would find salvation in the only place it can be found through God himself, Jesus Christ the righteous, by the power of the Holy Spirit. He wants to see lives transformed by the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, just like his life was transformed by that same gospel, by that same person. And he wants everybody to know, especially those who have not yet heard. And so we see in the first place then to those who have not heard, verse 22, this he says is the reason why I've so often been hindered from coming to you. I wanted to come to Rome. The reason why I have not made it there yet is because of my passion for the unreached. Now, we know that Paul has a passion for the Gentiles. He is not a Gentile. He is a Jew. By rights, he should hate the Gentiles. But because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, his heart has been transformed. He now has a love for the Gentiles. In fact, he has been called the apostle to the Gentiles. So from a pragmatic standpoint, it would make sense that if you're the apostle of the Gentiles, the first place you should go is Rome. Rome is not only the capital of Italy, it's the capital of the world. And if you want to find the most Gentiles in the nearest vicinity and, and, and the population density, Rome would be the logical place to go. So Paul, pack up and head to Rome. If you're the apostle of the Gentiles, go there. But Paul has a greater passion even than the, his passion for the Gentiles, and that is his passion to share the gospel that had not been named. So there are two things that have prevented him from going to Rome. One is that between Jerusalem and Antioch, in Paul's case, and Rome, there's a lot of people that haven't heard the gospel, and those in Rome have. He's writing the letter saying, I know of your faith. I've heard that you know the same Jesus that I do, that you have repented of your sins and believed in Christ and Christ alone for salvation as I have. And so I know that the gospel has been named in Rome. And so not willing or not wishing to build another's foundation, as he said in verse 20, knowing that the gospel had already reached Rome, possibly from those that were there when Peter preached at the day of Pentecost, but however the gospel got to Rome, it got there ahead of Paul. So Paul says the gospel's already there, and also between me and there, there's a lot of people that haven't heard the gospel, and my passion is for those that have not heard. But then he says in the second place, in verse 23, but the gospel has been shared. He has said that already in verse 19, that from Jerusalem all the way around to Lurkium, uh, the gospel has been preached. And now he says in verse 23, there's no longer any room to work in these regions. What is he saying? The major population centers between Jerusalem and Antioch and Rome, he has evangelized. He has shared the euangelion, the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ with those individuals. Now then, and only now, does he feel confident and comfortable going to Rome. Because the gospel has been preached, not to everyone, certainly, but Paul has been faithful, three missionary journeys through a lot of different trials and tribulations. The gospel has gone from Jerusalem and Antioch west, as far as Rome, and even into Rome. And so Paul says, now I have freedom in my spirit to go to Rome. But notice in the third place, because more have not heard. What, what is Paul saying? Is Paul saying, I'm done. I have the scars of the gospel all over my body. I have received 39 lashes. I have been, had rocks thrown at me and been left for dead. Twice I've had to escape from people that wanted my life. I have been in shipwreck and in perils of robbers and weather and all of these things. I have done all this for the gospel of Christ. 
And now the gospel of Christ has been known from Jerusalem all the way to Rome, so I'm good. I'm just going to retire. I'm going to take my retirement package from tents.com, and I'm just going to put up my feet, and I'm just going to coast into glory. Is that Paul's attitude? What does Paul say? The whole reason he wants to come to Rome is what? To keep going, right? This is the only time Spain is mentioned in the New Testament. It's mentioned here twice. He wants to get further west. I hope to see you in passing. How would you like to receive that letter? I've never met you. I really want to come. I've been trying to come for years. I hope to see you just on my way to somewhere else. Thanks, Paul. But what is he saying? As I go to Spain, Paul is not done. There's no retirement from discipling. There's no retirement from the Great Commission. As long as we draw breath, we are called to do what God has called us to do, which is to tell people about Jesus. And Paul's not done. The whole reason he wants to go to Rome is to, yes, spend a little bit of time with them, be refreshed by them, but then he has other plans. He wants to keep going to Spain. The Spaniards have not heard about Jesus. We do not know that he ever got there. Clement gives us some hope that perhaps he did, but we do not have firm confirmation from antiquity that Paul ever made it to Spain. But that was his goal. So Paul has a passion for the unreached, those who have never heard the name of Christ. But Paul also has a passion, secondarily, for unity. Paul's passion is not just that those who have never heard the gospel would hear it, but that those that have heard the gospel and believed it would live it. So Paul's passion is not just to go everywhere the gospel has not been heard. He also has a passion to disciple those that have heard and believed to live out the gospel in their daily lives. He has a great passion for unity. He knows the verses 25 through 29. What he's doing is he's taking a collection of money from different churches outside of Judea, and he's taking it to Jerusalem. We know this from 1 and 2 Corinthians, from parts of Galatians. We know this from the book of Acts. Paul talks, the, the subject he talks about the most, bar none, is the gospel. But one of the topics he talks about second most is this collection for the saints in Jerusalem. There had been a famine in the, in the early 40s A.D., and now as this continues on, even into the 50s A.D., the saints in Jerusalem are suffering financially. And so Paul has collected money, and you note that he has even said to the churches, when I come, have money ready. Give every Sunday. Don't just wait till I show up and go, ah, quick, we need to get some money together. Be putting money aside so when I come, I can collect it and I can take it down to Jerusalem. In Paul's mind then in verses 25 through 27, the Jews and the Gentiles are one church. Yes, there are different local churches and we believe in the local church. We are part of a local church. But in Paul's mind, there was not just a smattering of disconnected and disjointed and dysfunctional churches. There was a sense of the unity of the one church. So that what happened in Jerusalem impacted what happened in other places, and what happened in other places impacted what happened in Jerusalem. That we're one family of God. Jews and Gentiles were deeply divided, had been for millennia. And Paul, as a Jew, but as an apostle of the Gentiles, is doing his part to bring those two groups of people together. Because in any way that Christians are divided, they are actively denying the gospel. Right? Let me say that again. In any way 
that Christians are actively, knowingly, and consistently divided, they are denying the gospel. If God the Father can reconcile us to him, there is no relationship that he cannot repair by the gospel, through the gospel. And the Jews and the Gentiles were divided. One of the reasons why Paul wrote this letter was because of this division. Jews are looking down at Gentiles, these pagans, these unwashed heathen. They don't follow the rules. They don't do the regulations. They aren't cultured. What a bunch of pigs. What a bunch of swine. And then converse of the Gentiles are looking at the Jews and saying, these Jews, they're so hung up on all their traditions and the rules, they don't have freedom in Christ. And both groups are looking down their noses at each other. And does that sound familiar? Is that not happening still in 2021? Are there not vaccinated people looking down at unvaccinated people and vice versa in the church? Are there not Christians and even pastors calling against other pastors and churches over things that are not found in Scripture? Are we not still doing this? Have we not learned? And Paul says, look, I know and understand there's a deep division in the church. Paul was there. All you see in Acts is gospel, 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 gospel. And then it grinds to a halt in Acts 15. And everybody stops. And Paul and Barnabas come down, and Peter comes down, and the half-brother of Jesus, James, is there over the church of Jerusalem. They all come together. What are we going to do with the Gentiles? And they have a big conference. And they pray, and they speak, and everybody has their, uh, their thoughts. And then they make up a plan, and out it goes. And then the rest of the, of the book of Acts is gospel, 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 gospel. The only thing that shared the gospel in the book of Acts is the church, and the only thing that stopped the gospel in the book of Acts is the church. Isn't that amazing? And Paul knows. He understands these deep divisions, but in his mind, the reality of the gospel is that we are one in Jesus Christ. What did Jesus himself pray for us in John 17? Father, I pray that they may all be one, as we are one. Paul didn't just preach that, he believed it and he lived it. So the Gentiles should give their financial, material things to the Jews who have given them of spiritual things. In the second place, we see this partnering together in the gospel. Paul says they have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor, and yet, even though they were pleased to do it, indeed they owe it to them. There is a mutuality in the gospel. Paul understands that the gospel is to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. He understands that. And it's not that there's a pecking order in the family of God. He just understands that the Gentiles would not have the gospel had it not been for the Jews. And perhaps the Jews would not fully understand all of the gospel if it had not been for the Gentiles. There's a mutuality in the gospel. There's a togetherness in the gospel. And Paul is, is, is adamant that this gift and all that it means would go well. He stops his forward progression to take the gospel where it has not been named in order to live out the gospel where it has. He has to go to Jerusalem. We'll say more about that in just a moment. And then notice in the third place then, Paul's not just talking about Jews and Gentiles coming together and the Gentiles in the area east of Rome helping out the Jews in Jerusalem. He actually wants the Romans to partner together with him in the gospel as he goes to Spain. The boldness of Paul. <laughs> He's writing this letter to say, hey guys, I've really, really wanted to come visit you. 
I hope to come, and when I do, it'll just be for a short period of time because I have an idea that I want to go to Spain, and in the going to Spain, I'm, I want you to help me out with that. Notice what he says in 28 and 29. When I have brought this gift and delivered it, I will leave for Spain by way of you. He says in verse 24, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you. Paul's expectation is that the Romans would have the same passion for the gospel to go to Spain as he did. Now, why would an Italian care about a Spaniard? Why would a Roman care about those who are in Spain? Because if we have the heart of God, we should care about everybody, regardless of where they live, where they grew up, and what their story is. The gospel compels us to reach the unreached, and the gospel compels us to be united in Christ across all different types of diversity. Paul wants the gospel to go, to go to those who have never heard, and he wants the people who have heard and believed to live it out. Paul has a passion for both the unreached and a passion for unity. Notice in verses 30 and 33, 32 through 33, his passion also then for prayer. He understands that none of this happens in his strength alone. How do you bring Jews and Gentiles together? You write some policy, make up some new rules, enact some legislation, use fear and guilt manipulation, write a blog post, do a video series, Use Twitter. How do you bring these two groups of people together that hate each other with a millennial long or multiple millennial long hatred? How do you do that? You don't. God does. And so you see Paul's passion for prayer. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ, by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in prayers to God on my behalf. His prayer is always Trinitarian. Notice he prays to all three members of the Trinity. This is the triune God whose unity... <laughs> is what Paul is attempting to emulate. Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, and the Father are one, three in one. They define for us what unity is. And Paul prays to the Father by Jesus Christ through the Spirit, and he asks the church in Rome to do the same. And he has four prayer requests. What are they quickly? His first prayer request is protection from unbelievers, verse 33a that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. Paul understands that his presence back in Jerusalem is not welcomed. It has been said by all of the, the Jews who are anti the gospel, and some of whom have kept moving around, they keep following Paul, if you read in, in the book of Acts, to stir up trouble. Paul is a rabble rouser. He's bringing people away from Judaism. He's against the temple and the law and Moses and, and, and the Bible. Paul knows that his presence in Jerusalem is not welcome. He's also been warned. Numerous times believers say, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. It's tense. It's contention and conflict there, brother. You're gonna, it's not going to be healthy for you. The word on the street is that you're anti-Jewish, and the most Jewish place on the planet is Jerusalem, so that's not the place you want to be. No less than Agabus the prophet binds his hands with a belt and says, the one whose belt this is will be bound. It's Paul's belt. Paul knows what's ahead of him. And so he writes to the church at Rome and says, pray to God on my behalf that when I go to Jerusalem, because I must go, I have a passion not only for the unreached, but I have a passion for the unity of the gospel. I must go and deliver this gift to the saints of Jerusalem. Pray that I'll be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. Now we know that Paul was, not the way that he probably thought he would be, 
there's a riot. He's almost pulled limb from limb. The Roman government gets involved. Then he's protected. He gives a speech. More things happen. Then he's sent away in the, under the dark cover of darkness, the dark of the night. There's people doing a hunger strike until he's dead. He languishes for two years, multiple governors and all kinds of things. We know all of this story from the book of Acts. He finally does get to Rome. But he is protected from the unbelievers in Judea. <laughs> Notice in the second place, he wants the believers to accept his gift, 31b, that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. Understand that Paul is not primarily talking about the money. Has anyone ever uh, refused a gift of money? Hey, I have $100 for you, free. No thanks. Paul's understanding is not that they would not accept the gift of money. What Paul wants is that it's, or understands that it's more than the money. As we move into Malachi month, and as, as people faithfully give, and thank you so much for continuing to do that here at Grace Baptist Church, please understand, it's not about the money. God owns everything. God doesn't need our money. What he wants is us. You could give a lot of money to the church, you can give a lot of money to the charity, and not give yourself. And that's not what, what, what God wants. That's not the full understanding of this. This gift is not just a gift of money. Paul understands the source of the gift, and he understands the significance of the gift. He says, Gentiles, goyim, Gentiles, freely gave, were pleased to give. And in the case of Macedonia, out of their poverty, they were pleased to give to who? To Jews. Why? Because they're united in Christ. This gift has way bigger significance than just a little bit of money, or even a lot of money. It wasn't about the money. Paul says, not, a, not a, like a peace offering, please accept the Gentiles because they gave you money. His understanding of the gospel is that Jews and Gentiles are united in Christ. Vaxxers and anti-vaxxers are united in Christ. Mass and no mass are united in Christ. Whatever it is are united in Christ. And he's bringing them together. And he says, here's a gift from individuals that should hate you and individuals that you may even hate. And he's bringing this together to say there's a bigger significance here. Churches from far away, populated by mostly non-Jews, love you, and you ought to love them in return. There's a bigger significance here, and he prays that that would be accepted. Verse 32, he prays for refreshment in Rome, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. We know how Paul made it to Rome. It's not entirely certain that he was refreshed in the company of the church at Rome since he was under arrest, but that was his prayer. And he prays in the last place that God's peace would be in it all. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Paul understands, as we ought to always understand, none of this happens unless God is in it, because only by God's power can lives be transformed. Moved from individuals who hold grudges to individuals who forgive. Moved from individuals that are angry and selfish and self-absorbed and lustful and, and greedy and jealous and all of these so many things to individuals that are full of love and truth and holiness and righteousness and compassion and gentleness and goodness. Only God can do that. Only the gospel can do that. So notice then the last place as we close this morning, we see God's passion. It's all well and good for us to say these are passions of Paul. But at the end of the day, who cares? Unless these are also passions of God. Because are our passions the same as the one who made us and remade us and is remaking us through Christ? Is our heart resonating with the heart of God? We know from the word of God that God has a desire to have worshipers worship him from all peoples. We just read it from Revelation chapter 5. People from every tribe, tongue, kindred, and nation. Around the globe, 
today, individuals in every single country on the planet are lifting up praise to God in all the many languages that we have. There are yet some people that have not heard the name of Christ. And we need to share Christ with them. But it is God's passion that people that speak all different types of languages, have all different cultural backgrounds, from all different people groups, would worship him. And what an incredible scene that will be when we are in his presence, shoulder to shoulder, heart to heart, with people that are so very different than us, but are so very much alike, passionately worshiping together the one God. And that is the second point then. What is God's passion? God's passion, not only that these worshipers would be diverse, but that they would be united. Worshiping as one. We've already seen that from John 17. Father, Jesus says, I pray that they all may be one as we are one. There are so many things that can divide us. There are so many things that are dividing us. I thank God here at Grace Baptist Church specifically that God has gifted us with a great deal of unity. That is a gift from him and one we ought not ever to take for granted, but we thank God for it. That over these last two years and over these last many years, there has been great unity in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But that can disappear in an instant. When we make it about us, when we want our priorities to be prioritized, we want our opinions to be the ones that everybody goes with, when it becomes about us. As long as we are about him, we can worship together as one. But there is always that tendency to make it about ourselves. And so this diverse crowd that has many different opinions, many different backgrounds, many different ideologies and understandings, perspectives and opinions, gather from all of these different cultural backgrounds, and they gather as one to worship the one alone, worshiping God for his glory alone. It's not about us. It never was. It's all about him. And to the degree that we make it about us, we diminish it to that degree that it's about God. Paul wasn't about Paul. Paul wasn't about building the brand. Paul wasn't about making a mega church in Rome to the glory of Paul so that Paul could write books and be on the New York Times bestseller list and go around the country and do speaking tours and be a celebrity. Paul was quite content to be in obscurity because it was all about Jesus Christ. Paul knew who he was before Christ met him. And Paul wouldn't, knew who he would be without Jesus Christ. And so his only passion was Jesus Christ. That people who don't yet know him would know him and the people that do know him would look like it. That people who haven't heard would hear and people who have heard would, would believe and live it out. So Paul's passion is the same as God's passion. And the question then before us this morning, is it our passion? Are we passionate about those in our sphere of influence who do not yet know Jesus Christ? Have we been hesitant to share Jesus Christ with them because of reasons that are illegitimate? And if we are hesitant to share Jesus Christ with anyone, whatever the reason is, it's illegitimate. Do we have a passion to share Jesus Christ with all in our sphere of influence even and especially those who do not agree with us, do not think like us, do not have the same worldview as us, is our passion out of love for them to tell them about the only one who can save their soul and give them life and life more abundant. And are we passionate about living out the gospel and calling others to do the same? Are we more passionate about our rights than our about God's glory? 
Are we more passionate about ourselves than we are about him? Are we more passionate about our opinions and perspectives and our things than we are about him? If we are, we're doing it wrong. And so do we have the same passion as God does? People from all tribes, tongues, nations, and languages worshiping together as one and worshiping the one and only true God. May that be our passion as well. And may we look like it. Let's look to him in prayer this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. It alone is truth. There is much out there that says that it is true. And yet, Father, as we peel back, in most cases, not even very many layers, we understand that it is not true. There is bias. There is slant. There is narrative. There is deception. There is exaggeration, hyperbole. There are facts left out. It is very frustrating, especially in our times, to know what is true. But one thing remains. What has always been true still is true, and that is you and your word. It has not changed, even though we may have. And so, Father, help us to be changed by it. Help us to submit to the truth of God's word, to study it, to know it, to know you, and thereby grow in truth. Not be swayed by all the lies and deception and the hurt and the hate the anger and frustration, but Father, to be anchored to Christ who is the sure and steady anchor, to be anchored to the word of God, to be anchored to truth. And from that firm foundation to share with those who do not have it, but Father, to be sharing it from a place where it is real. It is one thing to say that the gospel transforms lives and takes people who are selfish and self-absorbed and who are only in it for themselves and for money and prestige and fame and who don't really care about people and don't really love and certainly don't love expecting nothing in return. It's all, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, and this is how everything operates. And why is the church any different? Father, I pray that it is. I pray that we not only believe the gospel and share the gospel, but we live out the gospel. And that is a powerful witness of truth. I pray that that would be the case for Grace Baptist. That, Father, here things are done according to your word. It's not about power and prestige. It's not about clout. It's not about us at all. It's about you, for your glory. I pray that for those that are lost and scared and fearful and angry and frustrated and confused and hurting, Father, that they would see truth, know truth. They would see your love. That, Father, they would repent of their sins and follow you and only you in faith. May we live out the results of that, Father, the reality of that in our lives every day. We cannot do this on our own. The only thing, the only one who is powerful enough is you. Father, let us rest in you each and every day. May we be busy in prayer and busy going about doing what you've left us to do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.